Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather weekly here at Lakeside to be nourished by your word. Lord, we have been blessed at this small church with so many gifted men who can teach the scriptures, and we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that your word will go forth boldly today. And I pray for the new members class that is starting, and I know Pastor Steve is speaking there this hour. I pray that it will go well these next few weeks for the membership class. I pray for the baptism class that's starting tonight. And I pray for all of the teaching that's going on even now. I pray for you to give me wisdom and insight as I speak. I pray for Pastor Steve in the morning service and the evening service. And I pray for all the others who are teaching in various venues around our campus this morning. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear. That we wouldn't just be absorbing more good information. But Lord, I pray that it would change our hearts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to our text this morning, last week we began looking at what is actually the end of the introductory section of 1 Peter chapter 1. At the beginning of the letter, Peter introduces a lot of themes and truths, ultimately all pointing towards his goal to encourage believers who are in the midst of hardship. Believers who are suffering, believers who are being persecuted. He's going to be teaching great truths that will enable believers to endure hardships. He's going to be teaching us a lot of the things that we should be doing from a practical level to live lives obedient to the Lord, even if our lives are difficult. Even if we're persecuted, even if we're enduring hardship and suffering, even if we're being treated unfairly, he's going to give us a lot of information that enables us to live the types of lives that God would desire for his children. But at the beginning of the book, he's not giving us a list of do's and don'ts. He's just opening the book, if you were, with a, a aroma of praise to the Lord for our salvation, for what he's done He's praising God for all the blessings that we have. And as he is praising, he's reminding the hearers, he's reminding us of the blessings that we have in Christ. He's reminding us of the blessings that we have because God has redeemed us. Even if we have to endure some trials right now, he's, he's even setting up everything as the fact that the trials are given by God... To enable us to prove that our faith is real. God knows what our faith is. But it shows us as we endure hardships. That even if we endure them for a little while. Just this earthly existence. It's showing us. It's refining us. It's showing us how our faith is genuine. And then as we come to verses 10 through 12. He's sort of putting a capstone on this introductory aspect. I'm going to read these verses. Last week I introduced it, but it's a capstone of this initial introductory part. When he gets to verse 13, he's going to start giving us a little bit more instruction. He's going to be telling us, do this, do these things, but he's not there yet. So what I did last week is I just read the text, and then I told you what the point of the text was, and then I introduced an outline to explain it. I'm going to do basically the same thing again as part of my review. So follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 10 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1. 
As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And because of the challenges of articulating what's really going on here, as I mentioned to you last week, I think it's understandable what Peter is trying to do, but it's hard for me to communicate it in its full depth. But Peter is trying to get us to look at our salvation and recognize that it is a marvelous thing. He wants us to understand that even in the midst of persecution, what we have been given in Christ should cause us to go, wow, this is amazing. And in fact, he's really emphasizing that we have privileges that the Old Testament prophets did never see. And he's in fact going to tell us, and we're going to get to that this morning in more detail, he's telling us that even the angels don't fully comprehend what we have. We're blessed. And so as I went through it last week, I gave you what I think is an imperfect outline, but it's an attempt to try and articulate these things in an orderly way. And I gave you three... set the outline up as three truths that show the wonder of our salvation. And the first truth was that Old Testament prophets wanted desperately to know what we know. Old Testament prophets wanted desperately to know what we know. Again, I'm not going to teach through all of what I taught last week, but just as a reminder to bring us into some context for today, this all comes from verses 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What's being conveyed here is that the Old Testament prophets would have looked at us and thought, wow, you people are blessed because you know all this. The Old Testament prophets realized not All of them had all of the prophecies that were given. God revealed to them certain things, but he didn't reveal to them everything. So in all likelihood, what Peter is saying is that the prophets were looking at the prophecies of other prophets. There's examples of that in the Old Testament. For example, I read you an illustration where Daniel was looking at a prophecy of Jeremiah, trying to sort out the implications. But the reality is it's likely that these prophets, their careful searches and inquiries were looking at other prophecies. In fact, there's indication, and again, I read you an example in a different context, but it had to do with Daniel not fully understanding his own prophecies. God had given him a prophecy. He didn't understand the full meaning of it. But these prophets wanted to know more. They wanted to know. They were told that the Messiah would come and that he would suffer, and yet after his sufferings, and they were plural, he would be the recipient of many glories, plural, and they wanted to know. They would have dreamed of having the knowledge that we have. They would have loved to have been in our position. Because we don't have to wonder, we can just open it up. We can look, we can cross-reference. It's even easier today, we all have computers. You can just do a word search. We can find out stuff that they searched and searched and searched and could never discover. The point is, 
We have a great privilege here on this side of the cross, on this side of the incarnation of Christ. He's already been to the earth. They were looking at what would be. We already know what has happened. So Peter wants us to understand we have been blessed. We should say, wow, thank you, Lord, that we get to know what we know. I think most of us, if we put ourselves up against famous Old Testament prophets, we wouldn't think we were more godly than they were. Moses was a prophet. I mean, God called him a friend. God spoke to him face to face. Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration. That would be unbelievable privilege. Daniel is a hero to all of us for his faith. On and on it would go. And we would say, well, we're not in that category of saints. What Peter's saying is you had actually even more privileges than they do. You've got, in some respects, even more blessings than they do because of the revelation that you have, they would have dreamed of. So the initial point, and I phrased it that way last week, but the initial point is focusing on the fact that those prophets desperately wanted to know what we already know. You think about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. The two disciples were kind of bumbling about, and Jesus opened up and showed them from the Scriptures all that was occurring. That's what the prophets wanted. That's what we have. And I just introduced my second point. That first truth, Old Testament prophets wanted desperately to know what we know. The second point that I introduced last week is that the Holy Spirit made sure that the truth came to us. And it goes back even to what I've already read where it says in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted. In other words, the prophecies weren't just coming about because these Men in the Old Testament decided to think things up. It was God, the Holy Spirit, working through them. These weren't their predictions. It was God's predictions that they were privileged to write down. God, the Holy Spirit, was the force behind the prophets. God, the Holy Spirit, was the force behind the prophecies. The Holy Spirit was within them, not in the same sense of we have in the New Covenant, but the Holy Spirit was inspiring them. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. That process of God's Spirit motivating the prophets. In fact, in 2 Peter... And I quoted it last week. It's just worth quoting again. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what we're dealing with. That's why we believe Scripture. Probably the most frustrating thing to me in seminary was reading people who professed to be strong believers. And I think in many cases they probably were believers. But they're so caught up in academia that they're casting doubt on the veracity of Scripture. They get so caught up in the lives of these men that they forget that the lives of these men is secondary to the fact that the Spirit of God spoke. And you can go all day about the imperfections of humanity and they are legion. But the fact remains when humans are inspired by the Holy Spirit, there's no error. Scripture is real. Scripture is valid. God took great care to make sure that we have in our hands the Bible that reveals these truths. So that was the initial part of my introduction. That really brings us up to speed on a quick overview of what I covered last week. But there's more about the fact that the Holy Spirit made sure that the truth came to us. The Holy Spirit inspired the prophets, but... 
Peter goes on to say something else. The Spirit of Christ, which he alludes to, again, it's just another way of referring to the Holy Spirit, worked in the Old Testament prophets to make sure that people had reliable truth about Jesus. Truth that Messiah would suffer. Truth that after the sufferings, the Messiah would experience incredible glories. He made these prophecies known, but he went beyond that. Verse 12 says something interesting. It says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things. The Holy Spirit not only gave prophecies and predictions to the Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit at some point and in some manner made clear to those prophets, look, this isn't about you. There were Old Testament prophets who warned about judgment. Just reading through Isaiah in my morning Bible reading, and Isaiah was someone who talked about that a lot. Throughout, you find prophecies about judgment of what was going to happen to Israel because of their idolatry, and many of those happened in the lives of the prophets. But when it comes to messianic prophecies, prophecies looking forward to the sufferings and the glories of Christ, it was something different. These men were diligently searching. They wanted to know more and more and more, but the Holy Spirit stepped in and revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. In other words... Those prophecies, carefully given by God, carefully given by the Holy Spirit, weren't even primarily to bless those prophets. They were for New Testament believers. That word translated in English, revealed, it was revealed to them in the Greek New Testament. That word in Greek and the variations of it are only ever used to speak about revelation from God. So however it came to them, it's clear this is revelation from God to them. God telling them in some way that we don't fully have articulated, look, you're ministering now to people that are going to live thousands of years from now. So the Holy Spirit worked to inspire the prophecies. The Holy Spirit predicted these things and inspired the prophets. The Holy Spirit let the prophets know this is what's really behind it. It's looking forward but the Holy Spirit also worked to get the message out to the original recipients of this letter. Look at the end of verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Again, you see this working of the Spirit bringing about a specific result so that New Testament believers would understand the truth. Now, when it says, which now have been announced to you, obviously the original recipient of the you was the original hearers. But what he's saying to them is profound. It should give them great encouragement and awe, and it should do the same for us. Because what he's saying is that all of the Old Testament mysteries about Christ's sufferings and glories, all of the things that they were digging through looking for and they couldn't fully grasp, he's saying it's all been revealed to you. It's been announced to you. And that transcends the time of the original writing of this letter to us because we got that truth the exact same way. It was announced to us. We had these things announced to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like it came to the original recipients. The way the truths were announced to Peter's original audience or the way the truths that were announced to our hearts at some point. 
through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. There are a lot of critical truths in this phraseology. A lot of critical things that tell us a lot about life in the church. The first thing is I lost my place in my notes. Excuse me. It's the key with the uh, iPad. If you click it the wrong way, it flies past you and um, it flew past me there. So bear with me. Okay. It's critical to realize, and the first thing I wanted to emphasize now that I've found my place again, is the primacy, meaning the priority and the sufficiency of preaching the gospel. If you sit where I sit and you get the junk mail that comes to the church on a daily basis and you keep somewhat abreast of what's going on in popular Christian cultures, you'll realize that there's a cottage industry of publishing and expertise that makes a fortune telling churches how to do church. They really do. They spend a lot of time and energy writing books, publishing books, putting on seminars to tell you how to draw people to church. How to tell pastors and churches how to be relevant. That's a big word that runs across. How do we be relevant? How are we real? How are we missional? I'm older than my age when it comes to that stuff. It's foolishness to chase after those things. I'm not saying that everything that everyone says is wrong. What I'm saying is... It's all misguided effort. Because what people need is to have those truths of the Old Testament about the Messiah proclaimed to them by the preaching of the gospel. The answer to being relevant is very clearly found in Scripture. Preach the gospel. There's no other way for people to be saved. You can come up with every type of program and activity... In fact, there are churches that have grown to the tens of thousands and 20 plus thousand and 30 plus thousand because they figured out a way to say what people want to do here. One of the most successful by an earthly standpoint pastors in America, massive television ministry. If he puts on a conference, people flock to it. 30 and 40,000 people a week go there. And what's fascinating is he never says anything. It is astounding. Week after week, he says nothing of relevance. And yet, millions pour in to him. And all the other people in struggling churches and of the other places that have a budget to meet, they look and say, what can we do to be like that? And I would tell you that we don't want to be like that. The gospel is what saves sinners. Romans 10, 12 through 17. If you ever wonder what should be a focus of things, it's a good verse to reflect on. I reflect on it from time to time. I reflected on it again as I was getting ready to teach. I'm going to read the entirety of Romans 10, verses 12 through 17. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all believe the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 
Peter's little phraseology that these things have been announced to you is really summarizing that same truth. It's the preaching of the gospel that changes everything, but here's another important aspect of it. If the gospel is being preached, it's not the power of the man preaching that's saving people. Because if they're not empowered by the Spirit, the work isn't going to be done. Peter talks about through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's God's Spirit that empowers the preacher. It's God's Spirit that empowers the preaching. One of the reasons God sent His Spirit to the earth at Pentecost and now indwells all believers is because it's God's Spirit that proclaims truth, that reveals truth, that shows truth. John 14, verse 16 and 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit always points to truth. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. That's all that this preaching of the gospel accomplished. And I think it's critical to always remember eloquence and creativity and the ability to be articulate are not the marks of good preaching. There's no virtue in being bad at preaching. Probably it's a lack of giftedness if someone is consistently horrible. But the point is, there are some very clever and articulate people who aren't actually helping the gospel, they're hindering it. The guy that has millions of people watching on TV and has thirty and 40,000 people showing up every Sunday, the one thing he is is easy to listen to. He's not saying anything, but he's smiling. And he's got a few humorous anecdotes. He says some things that seem to relate to people because he's figured out where people's ears are itching. And he knows how to scratch them, whereas biblically, he knows how to tickle their ears. Paul made it clear that the issue is not the persuasiveness of any individual person. 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, he says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, he said something similar. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, if the Holy Spirit's not in it, then it really is just a human enterprise and a human effort. So what Peter is trying to make it very clear to us is that God worked very hard through His Spirit to make sure you and I know truth. He made sure that the Old Testament prophets that pointed to Christ were accurate and that they put those prophecies there which help us to believe in the Scriptures. In fact, I know for many people, looking at fulfilled prophecy in the Old Testament helped them understand, wait, this is real. Wait a second, this is true. I know for me, reading through those things, it really had an impact. So God went to great lengths to make sure if you know Christ, that you heard the truth. Both with the Old Testament prophets and then with whoever preached the gospel to you. Whoever shared that truth with you. 
And that should be one of those things that convinces you of the personal love that God has for you. You look even at your own background, where you were when you heard the gospel, that you happened to be wherever it was. That's God's sovereignty. That's God's mercy. The fact that you had the ability to understand enough to believe is an evidence of God's sovereign work in your life. The Holy Spirit worked hard. Now, we use those terminologies. The point is, that's how we think of it. Obviously, it wasn't hard for God, but from our standpoint, it was a miracle. The Holy Spirit made sure that truth came to us. And it should cause us to say thank you. Wow. And that leads us to the final truth we're going to get to. Three truths that show the wonder of our salvation. First, the Old Testament prophets desperately wanted to know what we know. Second, the Holy Spirit made sure that the truth came to us. And finally, angels want to understand what God has done for us. Angels want to understand what God has done for us. It's that little phraseology at the very end. Things into which angels long to look. It's a very simple phrase in English. And it's not going to be hard to explain the meaning. But if we pause and meditate, it will cause us to go, wow. Wow. Now, obviously, when he says things, he's talking about the message of the gospel. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the glories that Christ already has received at his ascension and the future glories that are going to come when Christ sets up his rule on the earth. And he says, these are things into which angels long to look. Now, there's a factual component of this that makes us have to work a little bit harder. Because in my mind, whenever I read something like that, I try and put myself in their shoes. So, for example, when I read about the Old Testament prophets making searches and inquiries, I've done a lot of studying in my life, both as a lawyer and I can visualize that. In my mind, I can think, oh, I understand what that's like and looking through things and trying to find truth. But when you tell me that angels are longing to look, I struggle because I'm not an angel. In fact, I've never seen an angel that I know of. And I'll say it this way, probably most of us haven't seen an angel or angels. And if you did see an angel, you didn't know it was an angel. What do I mean? The end of Hebrews 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I don't doubt some of us interacted with angels, we just didn't have any idea we did. Yet Peter is telling us something about these unseen servants of God that's supposed to cause us to pause and go, wow. I'm going to try and connect some dots and bridge some gaps to try and get us to where we can fully at least ponder and meditate upon these beings that we can't see and that we can't relate to and what they see when they look at us. 
Now, several years ago when I was teaching through Hebrews, some of you, if you've been here a long time, might remember I did a whole side road on angels. In fact, I've actually preached that, I think, in evening services. I did a whole message on fallen angels. We normally refer to them as demons. And I did a whole message on holy angels. So I'm not going to, as much as I'm tempted, go back and rehash all of that. I'm just going to summarize some things about angels in general. And you, if you wanted more information, you could go and look up those sermons. I could help you look them up. So just trust me that I'm not just speaking off the top of my head. There's biblical support for the things that I'm going to say. So I want to summarize some basic truths, things that you're probably already aware of, probably that you already know, but hopefully will help us to come to grips with this simple statement that Peter makes, things into which angels long to look. First, I think it's clear in this context he's talking about holy angels. According to the Bible, angels are just created beings, period. They are. I know one of the false ideas I had in my mind used to be that there was God and there was Satan and they were equal enemies and they're going at it and hope you know God's going to win. That's a false thought. That's good for a cartoon or a Hollywood movie, but that's not biblical. Satan is just a created being. God is God, Satan is not. He's just one of the created angels. Probably angels were created very early in the week of creation, perhaps even on day one. And there are almost countless angels. The Bible talks about 10,000 times 10,000, not to work out a math problem, but just to say they're almost innumerable. There are countless angels that God created. And what we know is that two-thirds of those angels never sinned. They've existed from the time they were created to now, and they haven't sinned. Why do I say that? Because it talks about Satan and a third of the angels falling with him. So two-thirds of those countless angels never sinned. And they're God's servants. God uses them as messengers, at times to bring direct words to individuals. At times, according to Hebrews, they actually were used to write some scripture, meaning they were used to convey the truth that became scripture. At times, they're ministering spirits. That's primarily what they're referred to. Ministering spirits sent, to minister, sent by God to minister to his children. The temptations in the wilderness, they came and they attended to Christ. We know from reading in scriptures, at some point, God's going to use angels in the execution of judgment. There are glimpses of that where he did that in the Old Testament. Angels were so powerful that they wiped out entire armies. And it's fascinating, there appear to be a few different types of angels. The Bible talks about cherubim and seraphim. We don't fully understand the hierarchy of angels. We will when we get to heaven. The pictures of the living creatures always surrounding God saying, Holy, holy, holy. Angels are in the presence of God. They're sent out by God, but they have access to Him. They've never sinned. These two-thirds of the angels. So if you think about it, they have this immense power. They have this immense privilege in that because they haven't sinned, they have direct access to God now. They've seen history unfold. They've seen all that has transpired. They're in the presence of God and His perfection and yet there's something lacking in their knowledge. 
there are things into which angels long to look. They don't fully understand God's salvation of sinners like us. That word long, they long to look. It's indicating a strong desire. Not just passive or temporary or occasional. It's an ongoing desire. They want to know these things. And the word translated look, it almost conveys the idea of somebody stooping over and trying really hard to see something. I think from our images, and then they're not always correct, we could almost picture them peering down from heaven, looking, trying to see and understand more. What's fascinating about all of this is that they know a lot of truth. They know who Jesus is. He created them. They see him in heaven. They ministered to him on the earth. They understand the words of the gospel. They understand that it's true. They understand that there will be a judgment. What's fascinating is even the fallen angels know all these things. One of the things that really captivated me when I was first reading the scriptures in an era where God was beginning to open my eyes was that the demons all knew who Jesus was. We know who you are, Holy One. That just blew my mind. It's like, wow. And then James tells us, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, meaning they tremble because they understand the judgment that they're going to face from that one true God. So whatever Peter is saying, he's not just talking about knowledge. They have that knowledge. The mystery is this. Jesus' redemptive work was not for them. They don't have our privilege and experience of understanding God's grace and love and forgiveness. Jesus didn't die for their sins. Jesus died for us, our sins. Jesus' redemptive work was not for that created class of being called angels. Hebrews 2.16 gives a glimpse of this. For assuredly, he, Jesus, does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham, meaning mankind. So Peter is telling us that angels have a strong desire to understand something that we take for granted. We look in the mirror, if you know Christ, and you look and you see a sinner looking back at you. And you think about your life and you reflect on what you did and you just go, why me? Why did you save me? And if you don't have that type of question, you have to wonder about the humility of your heart and you have to make sure that you're not like one of those Pharisees who said, thank God I'm not like the tax collector. There's no reason for God to have saved us, and yet he saved us. And I think Peter wants us to be gripped with the fact that we look and we marvel and we say thank you, and the angels just say, what's going on? They can't grasp it experientially like we can. Again, they know that the salvation of a sinner is worthy of praise and joy. In Luke 15, there's two different references to this. In Luke 15, 7... Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in case there's any confusion, that joy in heaven includes angels. 
Luke 15.10, In the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. But at the end of the day, they can't fully come to grips with what we have. They'll never fully understand what it feels like to be forgiven. They'll never fully realize or understand what it is to be a redeemed, adopted child of God purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. They want to know, but they never will. Again, why is this here? It's here to encourage us. We have something that even the angels would love to fully grasp. I know myself, I don't think about these things deeply a lot. There are a lot of times where I take for granted what I have. And then I read this in a book that's designed to help us get through the trials of life. And I think I need to think about it more. Because I have trials of life. You have trials of life. And I think if the world keeps going, we're going to have even more trials of life. Probably in the form of external trials, in the form of types of persecution told you last week, I think, that I read an article from a government, something being recommended to the president. It, from a human perspective, from a legal perspective, it was horrible. But in the midst of all of this, what we're supposed to do is praise the Lord. Understanding the privilege we have to not only know the gospel, but to experience it in our lives. Let me encourage you, as I often do, make sure you know Jesus Christ. The tragedy would be in a church like this, hearing truth week after week after week after week after week, and standing before God going, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. You need to make sure that all the truths you know about Scripture don't put you in the same category as the fallen angels. Because they know all the truth. And they're going to be in hell for all eternity. Make sure that it has been applied to your heart. Make sure that in humility you've cried out to God for mercy. Had a conversation with someone this week. And they were looking for grace. And it's a challenging thing and it's a helpless thing from my part. Because all I can do is point to grace. I can point and I can show you and I could take you there. But God's got to do the work in your heart. God's got to be the power. I can make a persuasive case about a lot of things. I can make a persuasive case about Christ. But the reality is you need the Spirit of God to do a work in your heart so that you can be born again. Make sure that's occurred. Take stock of your life. Examine yourself, as the Apostle Paul says, to see that you're in the faith. And if you know you are, rejoice. Praise the Lord because the salvation we have and the knowledge we have of our salvation transcends anything Old Testament prophets could have imagined. And even now, angels look at us and wonder. Join me as I close this time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I am keenly aware of the limitations I have in trying to articulate the wonder of our salvation. 
I thank you, Lord, that if I think rightly, I realize I don't have to put that pressure on myself. I pray, Lord, that your spirit, who preserved the truth for us long ago and pointed us to Christ, and who opened our eyes to enable us to believe the truth through the preaching of the gospel by men motivated by your spirit, pray, Lord, that the spirit would open all of our eyes to truly stand in awe of the wonder of our salvation. Lord, I, even as I can explain things, I can't fully comprehend the privileges that I have and that my brothers and sisters here have. Lord, that angels who've never sinned would long to understand what we have, it causes my mind to break down. But I know it's true, and I know it's a privilege. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to not take for granted what you've provided to us. I pray that we'll be encouraged by the truth. I pray that we'll cling to the truth. And I pray that as trials come to us and perhaps, Lord, one day persecutions, I pray that we'll cling to the correct thing, that we'll cling to Jesus Christ, that we'll fix our eyes on Jesus in the midst of our storms. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.